Hello, and welcome to Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance performance. I'm your host, Rob Pickles, here with Coach Trevor Connor. It's winter in the Northern Hemisphere, the days have gotten shorter, the weather colder, and our first races are a few months away. This is when athletes and coaches focus on the base season. It's named this because it's supposed to build our foundation, or base, for the upcoming season. But what does that mean? In this episode, we explore the physiology behind what's happening in our bodies during this training, the energy systems we're developing, the attributes we're creating, and the effective training that will get us there. Our featured guest today is Dr. Inigo San Milan, Director of Training at UAE Team Emirates and the coach who guided Tade Pogachar to two Tour de France titles. We talk with Dr. San Milan about the physiology of the race season back in episode 165, and today we're going to bring a similar conversation. Joining Dr. San Milan are retired professional cyclist Brent Bookwalter, Dr. Bradley Patek, a cardiologist at Massachusetts General Hospital, and three-time national cyclocross champion, Stephen Hyde. So, put your bike in the small chain ring, and let's make you fast. Now that 2023 is here, many of us are thinking about our personal and professional goals. When it comes to goal setting, what works and what doesn't? Well, we have some guides that may help in our new Craft of Coaching module. Joe Friel shares stories of three athletes and important lessons they've learned about setting goals. Get this season off to the right start. Check out more at FastTalkLabs.com. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Fast Talk. This is an exciting episode because we're always really happy to have Dr. Sam Milan here with us. So, Dr. Sam Milan, welcome again to the show. Hello, uh, Trevor and, and, and Rob. Thank you so much for having me again. Uh, it's always a pleasure. So, yeah, thank you very much for the invitation. It's always exciting for us. I mean, the feedback in your episodes have been great. You always bring up something that, you know, Rob and I do a ton of research getting ready for these episodes, and then you go somewhere where we're like, I know, right? we, we never knew that. <laughs> That's pretty cool. So we're excited to see what you, what you bring up today. I am going to mention this is kind of a part two or maybe a part one. We did an episode a while ago with you. That was episode 165, where we talked about the physiology of the race season. <laughs> so we felt it was important to do this second episode with you, where we talk about the physiology of the base season. And that's what today is about. Excellent. Yeah, very excited about it. Yeah, Trevor, this was a hard episode for me to prepare for because in the beginning, I was like, I should prepare for everything. There's so much that we can talk about. And then it got really easy because I realized that Dr. Sam Milan, you can just take it away yourself and that I don't really need to add much to this one. So thanks for making this an easy episode for Trevor and I. Thank you very much. And I uh, always great to, to be here with you guys who have a lot to contribute and a lot of knowledge and experience as well. So yeah, it's always uh, fun talking to you guys. Well, we're just trying to keep up with you. And, and I'll start this by saying... And I know you're going to bring this up, so I'm going to be very vague about what advice you gave me. But I went in to be tested by you back in 2010. And you took me through my test results and gave me some recommendations about how to approach the base season. I thought it those were, were to quit the sport. Well, everybody gives me that recommendation. <laughs> but when I refuse, they then give me advice. On oh, well, that's, that's what it was. Through. That's what it was. Yeah. So you gave me some advice that was absolutely life-changing. I mean, I thought I really had my, my training figured out. And I, I applied that a little bit in 2010, but I was tested by you in June. So uh, I couldn't apply it too much in 2010, but 2011 ended up being one of my best seasons ever. And it was because 
of the advice that you gave me on how to approach the base. I'm really excited to hear you give that, I'm hoping, similar advice to our listeners. But let's dive into the first question that I have for you is an athlete, they finish their season, they take a bit of time off, they're just about to start their base season. What should they look like? How should they feel coming into the base season? Well, um, in my, my opinion, I think it's first it's important to make sure that you have a good rest, both mental and physical. Organize your goals. I think it's important to debrief with yourself or with your coach what has gone well, what has gone wrong, or, or, or what can be improved. And uh, where are the goals? Uh, where are the attainable goals uh, in the short term, in the long term? Because I always say it's not also what is going to be next season, right? It's all because what, where you want to be today, but what you want to be next season and, and in, in four or five seasons, right? So, uh, and what is the path to get there, right? So, because we all want to improve tremendously in one year and, and it's feasible to improve obviously a lot, uh, but uh, definitely you want to move on to other years. Uh, so I think this is a great time, the off season to really uh, recalibrate your direction and uh, set up your goals with your coach or with yourself. Dr. San Milan, we recorded an episode with the other Inigo, Inigo Muika, episode 243, and it was about what happens when we stop training. And I'm interested to hear from you, how much detraining do you expect an athlete to have when they come into the new season? Do you hope that they lose a little bit, say, off of their FTP? Or are you trying to maintain fitness from the previous season so that you're able to build through the base? Well, the thing from my point of view, the important thing is the assimilation of what you've done the entire year. So many, many times, and, and especially we're talking, you know, when you have like a long calendar and, and a lot of races, when you don't have the chance to have like a big solid stop of, let's say, three weeks, right? And this is something that we still don't know, but uh, there's got to be uh, a lot of first like recovery like a full recovery at the uh, biological, physiological, metabolic level on top of the um, recovery at the mental level. And this is the mechanisms that we don't know. There's an assimilation and supercompensation, right? So that, that that's what we see that for me, it's, I've been seeing for almost 30 years that when like a highly competitive athlete or not even a highly competitive athlete takes the time off, right? And then just starts rebuilding, uh, there's an improvement compared to last year. Whereas it would have been a continuum that is that that athlete doesn't stop, maybe would, we would not see that super compensation. And I don't know the answers of why this is happening because I don't think nobody knows because we wouldn't know the mechanisms behind assimilation and super compensation. But that's what I've seen that, that, that step, you know, like a next step to the next level, it's accomplished year by year. And that winter time around those three weeks off are crucial. Because otherwise, I don't see that change like over a continuum, right, without taking some time off. So that's interesting because there were some recent studies by, I'm sure you've read these, by Dr. Ronestad, who looked at having athletes do some, some hit work during that time off between their season and their base build. And he really drew the conclusion that you should be doing some some high intensity even during that time because that brings you into the season better. What's your feeling about that? When you say three weeks off, should it just be three weeks off? Yeah, well, the, the, the thing is also like what, what kind of athletes are done in these studies, right? It's a different concept, right? And, 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 and I'm not judging those results, right? But uh, it's a different concept to do this 
with maybe a college students or recreational athletes or or medium level athlete and doing this with world class athletes. And the main thing is that world class athletes uh, they go through a lot of stress, a lot of uh, uh, responsibility, and they really need to disconnect. So I guarantee you, if if you ask most not all, but most athletes to start doing high intensity training in the off season, by the beginning of the season, they're going to be burned out mentally, right? What they really want is to go to a lost island, right? You know, yeah. be sitting the beach, you know, like a, like a chameleon, you know, and it's just going to the beach and, uh, and, and have fun. That's what they want. And that's what's good for them mentally. But again, if you ask them to do high intensity intervals, it's going to be a very tough task mentally. The thing too is that that time off to me mentally and physically it's 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 quite important. And also, I'm sorry, I should have said that we are always free, you know, to do some activities. So it's not three weeks sitting on the beach, right? You know, you know I would recommend also to if you like racquetball, go for racquetball. If you like hiking, go for a hike, right? If you like to play soccer, go and play with care, you know, carefully that you're not going to get injured, right? But yeah, and and this is what many people do, right? They they do activities like uh, skiing, you know, like a uh, yeah, that's another thing too. So it's more for, for the mind. No, that's fair. So you, you talked a little bit about, you know, you work with world tour athletes. A lot of our listeners are much more recreational. So, so the next big question I have for you is, and let's just talk at a high level here, does the base season look different for a world tour rider compared to what it should look like for a more amateur rider, for a more recreational rider? That's a great question. Uh, so I, I, in my opinion, more of the amateur athlete or recreational athlete who don't have either as much competition or might not even compete, right? In my opinion, they, they should not take three weeks off, right? Because they're going to have like a big detraining. They don't have such a massive load of exercise and races, right? Which is such a huge stimulus to improve at all levels. So in my opinion, it should be more then, it should be more a continuum, right? Where uh, you should continue with very similar concepts that what you were doing before. That's where like, uh, uh, I would not change a lot, but maybe it would be a reset button. And it depends on the, on the athlete, right? Some athletes, they, uh, they enter the season and, and they might not have as many races as a world-class world tour cyclist in this case, but, but they're still, they might have like a 20 races a year and the busiest period is maybe the, the summer, into the fall also. So that might be a good time also to take to take it easy, maybe a week off or, or two weeks easier and then rebuild again because maybe they haven't trained those energy systems for months as much as they did the previous preseason, right? And, and in the winter and the first part of the spring, like we see here, right? That in state like Colorado, many areas in the US, season starts like in March and the, the peak of the season starts being more like towards like uh, June, July, August, right? That's when you have the most races, uh, even September. And this is where you race more and you don't train as much, uh, right? So, you know, that means that by the time you hit October or November, you haven't trained a lot, you know, and or, or your last time of really serious block of like base training, if you will, was maybe in March, the last when you finished it, you know, so maybe it's time to revisit that again. And, you know, my experience has been when they're in the actual base season, when you have a, a elite athlete, they don't need as long. They, they've done a lot of that work over the years, where when you have a, a newer, a more recreational cyclist, 
to me, let's make the base season as long as we can possibly make it and, and get that volume. Is, is that tend to be your approach or do you see it differently? No, I totally agree. I totally agree. And this, this is something that is not happening just in cycling, but in other sports that the, the off seasons are shorter and shorter and shorter. Right. So, uh, cycling still, we have some leeway to, to make sure that the cyclists have uh, a good three months, you know, to work until, you know, cause they have November, December, January. So they have a good three months where they can put at least what I, I like them to have two solid blocks, two mic- macro cycles. That is two, two months pretty much, right. Of solid blocks before starting the season, sometimes even three, because, uh, some riders start like at the end of February. Some some others are start already at the tour down under, which is in the end middle of, of January. Yeah, middle of January, exactly. But yeah, but some some riders they might start at the end of February, so they might have three, three, three almost four months in last season, since that since the last season. So, so that's why we we have that. But in other sports, like it comes to me right away, soccer they only have maybe fifteen days off. Uh, that's it in between seasons because they have uh, tournaments and uh, they have to go to other continents and do more. Uh, um, and, and they pay up big toll. Um, I'm not going to name teams, but I know a team that uh, they, they didn't have a preseason this year uh, where you take time off and then you build, right, uh, towards the season. And they went directly almost to, to different tournaments out there, you know, in, in, in Asia where they pay a lot of money and there's like extra TV rights, et cetera. And, and then now they started their season with about eight players injured within the first 15 days. And that's a part of they didn't have a good base and possibility to build the season, which is key. It's happening more and more in other sports. Let's hear from retired pro cyclist Brent Bookwalter with his thoughts on how the base season should differ between recreational cyclists and pros. During your years of focused training, what were the things that you really focused on during the base season? It's a good question. I'd say the base season, you know, sort of varied a little bit throughout my career. And I think Looking back on it now, I think that was that's also wise. I think as we grow and we age and we mature and we evolve, like most facets of our training, they need to adapt. So this quote base stuff that I was doing when I was, you know, a junior collegiate cyclist was definitely different than I was doing at the end of my career. I was a different creature and a different machine and a different person too. Yeah. So the thing that sort of sticks out in my mind about base is it's sort of a cliched word. It's kind of like in vogue to like, yeah, through the winter months, like talk about base training and base season. And one of the things that always annoyed me is I felt like for a lot of people, they saw it as a license just to like noodle around and ride easy. And, you know, as a professional, there's some long, slow miles, if you will. And I think there's some value to sitting on a bike and there's some metabolic happenings that are that are taking place even at a low intensity that have value. But that's speaking for the the rare portion of the population that is tasked with only riding their bike, and we can do it as much as we want. And for the for the masses, I think that do have some time constraint. I personally don't think there's as much value as just enrolling around. Yeah, license to noodle. I think uh, yeah, it's still the base season is still um it's foundational. It's it's some structure that you build upon. It's a it's a transitioning from the prior race season through hopefully some off time and then back into the bike. But it's definitely not a license just to, uh, to noodle around for 30 hours a week. We're discussing the base season and implying that it's sort of a defined time, say from January to March. There's not much competition. It's a good time to focus on the volume. But I question that. And Dr. Simulan, I'm interested to see, 
I tend to think about base as more blocks of training with a function of increased volume and the training adaptation that comes from that. But I have also in my training put those blocks of training, those base blocks throughout my year and throughout my season. And even if I was competing, I would still be training in that manner. And maybe I wouldn't be as sharp as possible for those competitions. How do you see the two different ways of thinking about it play out both with pros and amateurs? Do your pro athletes go back into a a base season partway through to re-ramp their volume? Or is it a very defined early season thing for you? That's a great question. That's absolutely a great question. And this is something I've been also trying to uh, preach for, for years because back in the days, you know, cyclists, they used to race uh, 80, 90, 100 days per year. So they didn't train much. It was competition and competition, competition. And, and, and I would say that cyclists at the high level, they need to train more and compete less. And in fact, that's what's happening now. Now you see that the best cyclists in the world, they do 45 to 55, 60 maximum or so days a year, right? So, and they have a few key times during the season where they might have a whole month or a month and a half to prepare for a major goal, whether it's the Giro or is the Tour or is the Vuelta. So this is happening also for amateur or recreational athletes. I, I, I agree with you that, yeah, you know, like you should continue with a similar pattern that's why I was saying like a continuum, right, over the years, because first, many people don't have the time to train as a professional athlete, so they're not going to get the benefits as much of the hours. It's just a matter of hours, right? It's like in any job, right? If you work 40 hours a week or if you work 10 hours a week, you're not going to get the same things done, right? So um, it might take you longer if you work 10 hours a week it might take you longer than if you work 30 hours a week to accomplish similar goals, right? So that's why amateur recreational athletes, they should continue and continue building throughout the year. Like, you know, should not change. Many of the concepts should not change. But there's, with professional athletes, they have this window of two or three months, which is key. And then they're going to have, it depends on the calendar. That's why we, we put a lot of effort in working on the uh, calendar of the writers. And then that's where, like, uh, you might have, like, a very condensed spring or first part of the year where there's not much room for training it's competition competition and recover competition recover then you do a stop where you would take time time off we take four five seven days off completely and then you might in this case for example you might prepare for the giro right uh or for the tour it depends you know and, and that's why you, you can have a month and a half to really fully train towards the main goal so uh, it's very individual and then you might have another stop and then you might prepare for the last part of the year. So we have a, a few windows throughout the year as well where we can revisit these uh, um, structures of training, which otherwise during the season is difficult uh, if you just race and race and race all the time. I'm glad you brought that taking time off. In my experience is when, it, when I work with a high level, like a pro level athlete, in the middle of the season, you take them, tell them to take a week off. They're like, yes, yeah, sign me up. I want to go sit on the beach. I'm feeling pretty beat up. But the people who struggle with that are, are the masters or the recreational athletes I work with because they go, oh, if I take time off, if I took a week off, I'm going to lose all my fitness. And I love the fact that, and this has probably happened 40 times now, I'll have a master's athlete who's going to take a vacation with their family. They're going to go sit on the beach and leading into it. They're just so stressed. They're like that week, I'm going to lose all my fitness. 
And then they come back and, and the first interval session I have them do, they're a little rusty. That, that kind of hurts. But then they do their next interval section. They're putting out better numbers than they did before they went away. And they're like, what's going on? And it's like, you got some rest. Your body likes rest. Exactly. And this is kind of what we were mentioning earlier about the assimilation and super compensation that we still don't fully understand, right? The mechanisms involved with that, right? But this is something that uh, I agree totally, right? That it's mentally, physically, it's both. But yeah, they come back from vacation and like, uh, whoa, they're ready to go again. And they, as you said, maybe at first week they're a little rusty, but then, wow. Yeah, I, I agree 100% because I see that both in amateurs and masters and obviously even at a professional level uh, where we, it's kind of almost like a requirement nowadays. Uh, I remember 20-something years ago, just even presenting this this possibility of an athlete in the middle of the season taking five days off or a week off going to the beach with, with the family. And it was like a unthinkable. Obviously, they would throw tomatoes at me, right? It's something that is it's a requirement. And, and the athletes, they, they, they do it all the time. Yeah. In fact, the first year when Tadej won his first of the France, he was so fit, you know, in May that I had to tell him, hey, Tadej, you're way too fit. Uh, yep. You're going to get to the Tour de France. We have a long time for the Tour de France. That was the uh, the COVID year, right? And so everything was postponed, you know? So the Tour de France was later. And by May, he was really, really fit. I said, hey, just take one week off. Go Back with down. Uska, his girlfriend. Go to a picnic or go to the mountains. Have fun. Disconnect one week because you just, you really, really need to take time off because yeah, the Tour is far away. And I don't think you're going to get in top form if you continue like that. And yeah, he took a, a whole week off. Well, they took, they took their bikes here and there just for fun, but uh, mainly they, they were pick, camping and going out there and swimming in the rivers in the summer, et cetera. That's great. Before we dive into the physiology, let's hear from cardiologist Dr. Bradley Pettick about some of the health factors to consider when planning your base season. This is a great question. I think this is one that to me falls to be honest, more in more in the realm of coaching than in medicine, in that I think we we don't have a great understanding of whether whether is it really kind of this zone one, zone two kind of real low level training, which to what extent that sparks these adaptations versus higher levels of intensity. I think there are very clear data and there's a very clear understanding that there are some elements of this which are intensity dependent. I think the suggestion to to athletes in general and would be in the base level of training would be really just would be really getting in the volume at this point. And that I think the the adaptations that are intensity dependent will, will be layered upon that that process, understanding that the that there's sort of a time and a place for each of those things. But the degree to which the things are unique to intensity is one of the things that kind of, I would say is an active area of study, but is not a is not something that we can that we've been able to sort of to parse out with with great specificity of saying that this adaptation is purely comes purely at the low levels. Um, but we do see even we do see remodeling even with people's sort of daily physical activity at varying levels of that. So I think putting in the volume will undoubtedly kind of get the basal level of heart adaptation going, so to speak. And then I think the higher intensity stuff will layer on top of that in the future. I did see that in some of the research that the the favorable forms of cardiac remodeling did seem to correlate fairly well with the amount of volume, how basically how many hours per week athletes were training. I think it was you saw the highest correlation in athletes who were training ten plus hours per week. 
Yeah, that, that's definitely one of the things that I think that's been pretty consistent across many studies is that when we look at the degree of adaptation, we see probably the strongest correlation with volume. What that doesn't get into is how much intensity is commingled with that volume. But I think it's a good argument for the role of, particularly in the base part, some of the base part of someone's training, the role of volume there. And then where does interval work? Where does all that fit in? Because this the part that gets a little more complicated, but I think it's certainly they each, I think our takeaway though, what we talk about with patients is that each element kind of confers unique physiologic adaptation. And so they, they each play a role and, and adapting them is kind of a, both a personal and sports specific thing. So let's shift gears here a little bit. And before we get into the sort of work you should be doing in the base season, the question I've been really fascinated to ask you is, let's talk about the physiology. What energy systems, what physiologically should be going on in your body in a successful base season? What are the changes we want to see? What are the changes that you don't want to see in January or February? This is my opinion, right? I don't have all the answers. And as we, we all get older each year, we, we, we learn more, right? And uh, both from experience and from research, right? And from others, obviously. So that's my opinion, right? So um, I think that yeah, it's important to keep improving that oxidative capacity, which is the ability to utilize especially fats for fuel as well as oxidize glucose very well in mitochondria. So everything comes down to the bioenergetics of mitochondria, which are quite important, quite robust. So uh, we want to improve that fat oxidation capacity so they, when the competition comes, you can travel through the race utilizing more fat than glycogen, and therefore you can spur glycogen sturges for the last part of the race. You're more economical, right? And at the same time, you can improve that lactate clearance capacity. So both fat and lactate are utilized in mitochondria. Therefore, it's important to really focus on that energy system in that first part of the year. And, and mainly is because this takes months. I mean, this is what I've learned, at least from my experience, that improving that takes months and even years, right? Uh, that's what we're saying about master's degrees. They might not have 30 hours a week, but they might only have 10 hours a week or eight hours a week. So it's going to take them way longer, but it's a process. Whereas then as, as the season gets closer and closer, you need to start, you, you know, stimulating uh, the glycolytic systems, the pathways, the turbo, right? Which is the, comp- the, the intensity you're going to deploy in the competition, but that's a, an adaptation that takes weeks. So it's not so permanent to do that when you're three months out, I think. Whereas, uh, yeah, that oxidative capacity, it, it's something that's going to take months. So, you know, you cannot start doing that in, in March or so. You know, you can do that. That's, that's where the window of the preseason, it's, it's excellent for that. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up about the, the timing. I also like that you, you said... This is just opinion. Rob and I both went through all the old research we have, and we certainly find studies showing, you know, pro athletes and and what they were doing in the base season, what they were doing in the uh, the race season. But I couldn't find a, a single study that analyzed what physiologically is going on in athletes. So I think at this point it's all opinion. But I did find a, a couple that that had some hints. And certainly there were a couple that talked about the fact that the sort of these aerobic adaptations that you're talking about, they often don't show up in the research because these can take months to years. 
to see these sorts of adaptations. And you know, most studies tend to be six to 10 weeks at, at the longest. One that I found really interesting, so this was a study by uh, Gwentel Leahy. I'm sure I mispronounced that and I apologize. So this is an, an older study from 2009 that talked about some of these differences between amateurs and well-trained and really brought up what you're talking about, which is this much better oxidative contribution. They basically said when they're going at the, these harder intensities, you're seeing the more elite athletes with the, this better base fitness better able to handle pH, uh, better able to do the work aerobically with fat oxidization, where you're probably seeing in, in the less trained, they're relying a lot more on anaerobic metabolism. And I saw that in a couple studies. So one other thing to point out in this study, they said they actually didn't see much of a difference in, in economy. But what they said was that even though there wasn't that much of a difference you saw the contributions being different. In the elite athletes, it was much more reliant on, on the aerobic systems where in the, uh, the more amateur, you were seeing a, a greater reliance on, on anaerobic metabolism. So they just couldn't last as long. Yeah, exactly. And I, I agree. And, and this is also the, the typical thing. Like, I mean, like when I started doing this, I was like, wow. But now it's like, sure, one more. This is that, that many cyclists, that they, they, they have never done this before for example they 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 do a lot of high intensity from the beginning of the preseason right or do a lot of intervals already and now they, they do more like that base if you will right uh, with a lot of zone two in the preseason you know the first interval of the year comes and even the first race of the year comes and there's like they do the pr and they're they're way stronger and like they say like this is impossible so I, have, I haven't done intervals nearly, nearly as much as I did other years. And here I am, I do my first interval of the year and I'm doing a PR, you know, or a Strava KOM, you know, in my local area, like what, what's going on? And so this is also what, to me, reinforces more of that idea of improving that oxidative capacity and mitochondrial function in these months, because it's key to clear lactating, to improve fat oxidation. So when you deploy the turbo, which is the glycolytic capacity, you have a very well robust mitochondria to clear the lactate and use it for fuel as well. One really important thing I want to mention here, um, you brought up lactate. For our listeners who are less familiar with the physiology of this, we often think of lactate or particularly they think about lactic acid as this bad thing if you're producing it. If your blood levels are going up, that means that, you, that you're going too hard and you're not going to last too much longer. But lactate metabolism is a lot more complex than that. And what you were, you were talking about, Dr. Samalan, is the fact that actually lactate is pulled into our mitochondria. So we think of our mitochondria as that's where aerobic metabolism happens. But that first step in aerobic metabolism is to take the lactate, which is then converted to pyruvate, and that starts the whole aerobic metabolism process going. And that's where fat is used as fuel. But if you don't first have that lactate or pyruvate, the process can't get going. So actually having lactate, having your cells have access to some lactate is really important for aerobic metabolism. And we shouldn't just think of it as this end product of when we're, we're going really hard, when we're working anaerobically. We asked national champion Stephen Hyde his thoughts on base season training. He gave an interesting answer about the importance of execution versus thinking long term. Let's hear what he had to say. One thing that really helped me 
raise my level was I think understanding that good training, good quality training takes a really long time to work. Accepting the process for what it is, which is just getting in there and, and chipping away at it. Early on in my career, I really pushed hard on myself to be better and better and better every workout and see bigger numbers. And I wanted to see much bigger numbers. And, and I see it reflected in the athletes that I coach now is that you want to see improvement every time you go out there on the bike, but that's not the case. It's, it's long-term development is, takes a long time. It, it doesn't come in a week and throw the, the increasing loads of a training block on top of that. You're just kind of setting yourself up for failure. And I did that a lot. I expected things out of myself that I shouldn't have. I wanted greatness when what I really needed was, was just acceptable for the time. And once I kind of realized that and started looking at training as the job that I needed to do in order to get to the race, right? Because in reality, no one pays you to bike race. They pay you to train well when you're a professional. And that, that shouldn't be lost on people, even on the amateur level. I think that getting to the bike race is obviously the goal, but doing the work between and setting yourself up for positive results rather than failure by constantly looking for extreme gains is really the key to all that. Something that we've been implying through this conversation is ultimately what I'll say now and that that's the hallmark of base training might not be the only training, but the hallmark of base training is relatively large volumes of low intensity riding or running, depending on your sport. And Dr. Sin Milan, I'm interested to hear from you. How does that, and, and we can get into the weeds on this one, that's okay. How does that large volume of low intensity training improve mitochondrial oxidative function, lactate transport? What's actually happening inside the body to cause those changes? And then how are those structures changing to accommodate the improved performance? Well, again, this is what I've seen over the years, right? And this is my opinion, right? In my experience, we don't have solid research to show this. I admit it, right? So that, that, that's what, again, is my opinion. But uh, what we have is a lot of data, which implies uh, that there's a big improvement at the mitochondrial level. And this data that I see is in the laboratory the methodology I've been using for years, you know, to indirectly assess mitochondrial function is looking at fat oxidation and uh, lactate cleanse capacity. So I started doing this substrate utilization, fat oxidation in the winter of 2005. And ever since then, I, I was like, wow, this it's just the, the fat oxidation and lactate cleanse capacity. They're so tightly integrated, right? Uh, and again, it's Fat can only be oxidized in mitochondria and lactate in mitochondria as well. So they're both mitochondrial substrates. So when you measure in the laboratory fat oxidation in an athlete and lactate clearance capacity over time, the, and, and, and then you correlate that with the different training methodologies that have been done, you can get to see which trainings are improving mitochondrial function the most. So uh, this is what I'm seeing. Those ones who do this volume uh, for months, right at that zone two, if you will, and then some intensities here and there, but mainly the zone two, that's what those ones that come back three, four, five months later, and they have the highest improvement in, in, in fat oxidation, as well as lactic cleanse capacity, as opposed to when I see athletes to student high intensity, I don't see an improvement of fat oxidation and lactic cleanse capacity or see very small improvements. 
meaning that uh, that mitochondrial function hasn't improved much. I wish that we can do this uh, research uh, more or understand this more with uh, multiple mechanisms at the mechanistic level, what's going on at the mitochondrial level, what's going on at the transporters levels, what's going on at different receptors, uh, metabolomics. Uh, uh, I don't have the funds to do that, but if someone else has it, it will be great. But we have pieces of multiple studies done of how different the stimulation energy systems might improve all these uh, transporters and parameters that I was mentioned. Listeners, something that I think that's important that everybody knows, as Dr. Simulon said, both fat oxidation and lactate clearance are associated with the mitochondria. And the lab test that he's talking about is actually utilizing two different ways to measure that, right? Because when we assess carbohydrate and fat oxidation, we're doing that through breath by breath, looking at the ratio of oxygen and carbon dioxide. But the lactate data is coming from a totally different measure, and that's coming from capillary in the blood. So it's really interesting to see how both of these data taken from two totally different parts of the body correlate so strongly because that mitochondria is the link between the two. We published this, uh, my colleague uh, George Brooks from Berkeley, and, and I would publish this in 2017, looking at that interaction, right, between fat oxidation and lactate, both in world-class athletes, moderately active individuals, and people with metabolic syndrome. And the correlations are uh, in the 90s, the, uh, the R's, right, uh, it's like 0.90 something, and the P values were like a, 0.001 or so. So it's very high correlation. That meaning that definitely fat and lactate are highly correlated. And we know that lactate, what, what, one of the things that it does too, when there's high lactate levels in the blood, they bind to a receptor that is called a GPR81 that is on the uh, surface of the adipocytes. It inhibits lipolysis. On the other hand, we published uh, also this past year uh, an, an article showing that, um, and, and that shows like the endocrine capabilities of uh, or properties of lactate. But then we have also shown the autocrine okay, um, uh, capability of lactate, and we have shown that uh, it decreases CPT1 and CPT2, mainly CPT2, which are key for fatty acid transport across mitochondria, right? So uh, we see that high lactate, whether it's in the blood or whether it's at the local cellular level, it's going to be a main regulator of what's called the intermediary metabolism, in this case, affecting fat oxidation. And this is what we see in our curves, that fat and lactate, they're inversely related very tightly. So Dr. Simulan, I think that a lot of our listeners are familiar with lactate from the lactate testing and the first and the second lactate turn point. What changes would we expect to see in a lactate graph if we're pricking fingers, if you're me, or pricking earlobes, if we're you? How does this actually show up in results that our listeners can understand by going through this larger volume, this base training? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and when it comes to lactate, there's just so many ways to interpret lactate and, and so many protocols. And depending on the protocols you have, you're going to get different lactate levels. So it's a tricky one to look at, right? But and, and also how we interpret even LT1 or LT2. I, I interpret LT1, for example, as when you start accumulating lactate, meaning that your glycolytic flux, utilization of glycolysis increases, and the mandatory byproduct of glycolysis is lactate. So if you don't have a good lactate cleanse capacity in mitochondria for fuel, lactate is fuel, lactate is going to be start building up. 
right? So because uh, lactate is producing fast twitch muscle fibers and it is preferably oxidized or cleared in mitochondria of slow twitch muscle fibers, right? So in the moment you get to an exercise intensity where you start deploying more of the fast twitch muscle fibers, we know very well that fast twitch muscle fibers, they prefer to use uh, glucose than fat. So the glycolysis, it's increased and therefore lactate production. So if you have a very robust mitochondria in fast, in slow twitch muscle fibers, that's what we achieve with zone two also. That's when you're going to be able to clear lactate better. If don't, then uh, lactate has no other way to go. So it goes to the blood. And from the blood is, is, is the preferred fuel for so many cells in the body. Is utilized by the heart, by the kidneys, by the brain, by the liver. And it also can be reutilized back to uh, uh, glucose through gluconeogenesis, right? And the core cycle. But the, the important thing is that's if the presence of LT1. Other, other people might call it the aerobic threshold. I'm not sure about that methodology because everything is aerobic all the way until you review two max, right? So I don't, I don't quite understand myself what aerobic threshold means in the first place, especially when then you have anaerobic threshold. So, so anyways, but it, that's what I'm saying. It depends on how you interpret it. But the adaptations that you should see is that let's say that your LT1, that this is that inflection point where you start accumulating more lactate. Let's say it's 200 watts now. And then now you want to see that three months later or so, it's going to be 225 or 230 watts, right? That means that the, the glycolytic flux, the glycolysis, it's even increased because you're doing more higher power output, right? So it requires more glucose and therefore you're going to be producing more lactate, but your lactic cleanse capacity has improved very well. And therefore uh, you don't produce nearly as much lactate at 200 watts as you produced before. Again, meaning that you're having a good adaptation at LT1. At LT2, we can observe the same thing. That's just another way of interpreting. Some people call it anaerobic threshold. Some people call it lactate threshold. Some people call it a maximum lactate steady state. This is where th there's no unification of criteria, right? Of when, when it comes to this and, uh, and, and, and furthermore is that, as I always say, is that lactate too, if you want to call it lactate threshold, for example, or maximum lactate steady state, so I don't like anaerobic threshold because that term doesn't exist. Technically, from a, a bioenergetic standpoint, you know, like a, in your lactate threshold, which kind of in our minds is going like 15, 20 minutes or, or FTP, you're past that point, you still are in fully aerobic conditions. And then that's the other thing. Like people think that when you produce a lot of lactate, you're anaerobic. Absolutely not. My, my colleague, uh, George Brooks, has shown this already 30 years ago, that you can produce more than 30 years ago, you can produce lactate under fully aerobic conditions. Dr. Uh, Otto Warburg, who um, discovered the first uh, 100 years ago now, the first transformation of a normal cell into a cancer cell, he observed that cancer cells, they utilize a lot of glucose and therefore they produce a lot of lactate under fully aerobic conditions, right? Showing that there was no anaerobic conditions for cancer cells to produce lactate. That's what we see in skeletal muscle as well. So it's important to understand this concept that just the fact that you see in blood four or five millimoles, for example, that doesn't mean you're anaerobic by no means. You know, uh, you, you, you can see like uh, someone who is not very uh, well trained that uh, at low intensity, that person is at four millimoles. It's fully, fully aerobic because you look at his or her face and they're breathing normally also. 
right? So important to, to know that, but uh, that's going to the LT2, whatever you, we want to describe it, you should see the same thing. And maybe the LT2 is, is that's where like a boom, light, it goes wild, right? You cannot sustain it. And it's a very high intensity and another inflection point. And again, it might be 350 now, but uh, maybe in two months, it's like two, it's 375 or 400 watts. And that's an, uh, another sign that again, you're, you're producing a lot of glucose. Uh, at that point, the fat oxidation is probably none, uh, non-existent or minimal, right? And it's all fully glycolytic effort, right? So the amount of lactate you produce is huge. And this is where that's the, the, the deal breaker in, in competition, because this, this is where you win the races at, the, at that intensity, right? Uh, you don't win races at zone two, you win races at high intensity. And this is where you shuttle lactate from uh, fast twitch muscle fibers to mitochondria and slow twitch muscle fibers. And if you have that lactate clearance capacity, you're still going to produce tons of lactate because again, it's very high intensity, but now you produce four millimoles, whereas before you were at six or seven millimoles, right? So now it's a sign of like a huge improvement in your economy at the metabolic and mitochondrial level, and you can sustain the effort longer. Yeah, I think you you raised a, a really important point. I actually just wrote an article about this, that we think that as your intensity increases, you're, you're completely aerobic, completely aerobic, completely aerobic, then you hit this point, and then you're completely anaerobic. It's not the way it works at all. Um, you are always using a mix of aerobic and anaerobic metabolism. What changes is just the ratio. Yeah, and the predominant is, is always aerobic, right, all the way until the VO2 max and, and sprinting, right? But I agree. Hi, listeners. We just launched our new podcast series, Fast Talk Femme. Tune in to hear co-hosts Julie Young and Dee Dee Barry, former pro cyclists and U.S. national teammates, chat with a stellar lineup of experts to explore female physiology, nutrition, training through pregnancy, and more. Check it out at fasttalklabs.com. So going back to the the base phase, I'm I'm going to share what you showed me back in in 2010. And you were just talking about this. Uh, you look at that lactate curve. So what you were describing, if we had you on a treadmill or on a stationary bike and we're increasing your, your wattage, say, every five minutes or every 10 minutes, what you would see is at lower intensities, your, your lactate would just be a, a horizontal line. It wouldn't be going up at all. As you said, at a certain point, at a certain intensity, that's your LT1, you're going to start seeing that lactate slowly creep up and then it's right around four millimoles where you hit that LT2. And as you said, past that, your, your lactates are going to shoot up and, and you're not going to last very long. What you said to me in 2010, which is probably the most important thing to be doing in the base season, is you want to push how far, you, you want to push that curve further to the right. You want that point where lactates start to rise to be at higher and higher wattages. And I loved you actually showed me you, you did all this work on athletes of different levels. And if you take a recreational rider and you have them going at, at say, 230 watts, they might be at three millimoles. You take a top pro and have them going at 230 watts and lactates haven't even, haven't even started to rise. Yeah. And, and this is what is fascinating to see this and, and, and how everybody's individual. And this is what lactate gives us tremendous amount of information that other parameters don't give us. Historically, we've been doing, or people have been doing these tests, you know, looking more at the cardiorespiratory adaptations, you know, uh, the VO2 
right? Uh, was your your main is a representative of the, because it's the cardiorespiratory, right? Involved the, the whole lung and and cardiovascular adaptations to exercise, and VO two is the maximum representative. But we know very well, and you have seen it all the time, is that the day to day, right? That you can see two athletes with the same VO two max. One is a uh, it's an okay athlete, and the other one is much better, right? But they have the same VO two, right? And uh, so, how can you discern or or discriminate both? And this is where you go at the cellular adaptations at the cellular level, and that's where you see that, in fact, the one who's better, and let's say at three hundred watts, is at one millimole of lactate, and the other one has at four millimoles of lactate. So that shows that at the mitochondrial level, the adaptations are completely different even though the VO2 max shows that they're the same, right? And then you start partitioning also the, the fuel, the substrates, right? And you see that at given same relative exercise intensity, one athlete uh, you know, is, is maybe fully glycolytic already. There's no fat oxidation, whereas the other one is still oxidizing it's considerable amounts of fat, right? So you know that those athletes are metabolically different, although their cardiorespiratory uh, responses are identical, right? So this is what more and more, when it comes to working with athletes, we, we're getting into the metabolism, the cellular level, which truly discriminates between one athlete and, and the other and helps us to understand also what kind of training methodologies or, or stimulus we need to improve rather than a percentage of VO2 max and, and, and all that, which in my opinion, it's, it's something that it's becoming obsolete and it can be quite erroneous. You know, I have an athlete that I'm working with. He's in his 50s and, and hired me. So he actually hired me when he was in his late 40s. And I saw that this, you know, he, he was hitting LT1 at extremely low wattages and was just doing the, the Saturday group ride and was struggling to hang on. So we did a ton of base work, you know, a lot of what you had recommended to me, having him do that, that zone two work. And now what's happening is if I took him in and, and tested him and his LT1 is right around 230, 240 watts. He can hold 240 watts all day long. And now he goes out to the group ride and he's like, I just sit there and ride at 240 and everybody else falls apart. Yeah, that's uh, so typical. That's what I was mentioning earlier too, right? That, yeah, that's that lactic cleanse capacity and, and he's very metabolically efficient. It's, re- it's remarkable. 230, 240 watts is, is really good. That's an effort also that, that the better you are, the more you have to push. This is another thing I would just like to point out that, uh, I don't know if it's a misconception or, or what, but there's the idea that aerobic part, you just, you only use fat, you know, when you do that zone two, for example, they use a lot of glucose also. So you can use somewhere between two and three grams per minute of glucose. And when it comes to point that you have to push 250, 280, 300 watts, you know, to be there all day whether, you know, the level you are, it's a tremendous amount of mechanical work that you need to put and for, for to move 300 watts or 280 watts, you, you need to use a lot of glucose as well. So you definitely are deploying a lot of glucose. You also been utilizing a lot of fat and usually it tends to coincide with that fat max, that's maximal fat oxidation also. But at the same time, you have a, a significant amount of uh, glucose. And this is what we see in our world-class athletes that uh, when they first start doing these kind of trainings, uh, they bonk many of them, 
And like after two hours, like, oh my God, what, what the hell happened? They have to stop at a gas station or something like that and pile up on, you know, Mars or sneakers or <laughs> Coke or whatever, right? Because they're like, oh my God, I'm bonking big time. And this is what then you start revisiting nutrition, which is very important too. This is another area that it's a whole different animal, right? But yeah, you know, you can use two, two or three uh, grams uh, per minute at that intensity of glucose. Therefore, you produce a lot of lactate too. And to translate that into calories, and again, this is, we're talking high level athletes that are able to oxidize this much glucose, but three grams a minute is about 700 calories an hour from glucose being oxidized aerobically, not anaerobically as, as people would assume. And this is why when I have athletes go out and do these, these, what they consider long, slow rides, I'm like, eat, eat a lot on that ride. Cause you're going to be surprised how quickly you're going to deplete. Absolutely. And this is what we learned in the laboratory, right? That uh, use a lot of glucose. And this is what back in the days, uh, 15, 16 years ago, I started to, to, to look at the grams per minute of, of oxidation of carbohydrates. And, and like, remember back in the days, the, uh, the guidelines for carbohydrates in terms of grams per hour were about 30 to 55 grams per hour that was needed for efforts over three hours. And looking into this, I saw like, that doesn't that doesn't make much sense. Uh, I think that we need to do at least 80 to 100 grams an hour. And when I started this concept, poof, that was like, uh, I, you know, people were laughing at me. This is, this, this is absolutely impossible. I mean, top, top nutritionist, right? I'm not going to name because it was absolutely impossible for athletes to use 80 to 100 grams an hour. Now it's what everybody does, right? Uh, and, and, and many of these nutritionists now, they're giving talks around the world getting paid for that to, to say that the recommendations are exactly 90 grams per hour, right? So uh, I'm just saying that th these concepts are, are 15 years old already, uh, but are coming from those tests in the laboratory where we see fat and carbohydrate oxidation rates, which again, it gives us tremendous amount of information, not only at the, about the, the metabolic adaptations of an athlete, but also the nutritional requirements of that athlete. We can get to personalize. There are athletes, they, they oxidize a lot of glucose, carbohydrates, right? At, at different intensities, whether it's a marathon pace or whether it's a triathlon in, 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 in the different uh, sports or where it's cycling. And that's where we can dial in the, uh, the nutrition for that specific athletic event. The last question, I know this is all opinion. As we said, I, I couldn't find any studies on exactly what's physiologically happening in the base season. But do you think there's anything going on with muscle fibers in an effective base season? Is there any sort of fiber conversion? Is there any improvement in efficiency? Or, Yeah, from what I see from all the parameters that we see in the laboratory, right, indirectly without doing muscle biopsies, right, is that, yeah, there's an, an improvement in the efficiency uh, especially of type one muscle fibers. That's where um, you have the highest mitochondrial number. And, and it's not just about the number of mitochondria and the synthesis of mitochondria, uh, but about the function. People talk a lot about mitochondrial precursors, you know, and mitochondrial biosynthesis, right, or biogenesis, but it's just also, it's the main thing is the function, right? So I think that in like stimulating mitochondrial function is going to, uh, be specifically in those type two, type one muscle fibers, and you can see probably an increase in mitochondrial size number. This is what we, we see in studies that have done at Toledo, 
did that was uh, at Pittsburgh, the University of Pittsburgh, back in the late 1999 or 2001 or something like that, so about over 20 years ago, looking into patients with uh, diabetes or prediabetes and how after a few months of aerobic exercise alone, supervised aerobic exercise with different times sessions a week, they uh, triple the number and the size of mitochondria. And uh, also their glucose tolerance improves significantly. So we know that, uh, um, uh, and we, there, there are a few reports showing there, especially with, with the training, training, and, and also some populations with chronic diseases that mitochondrial function increases tremendously, and therefore also with, with athletes as well. So that, that's where you want to isolate that energy system and focus on improving your mitochondria and the function as well. Another thing that is important, all the different elements, you know, so one of the things that you improve is the transporters for lactate, right? So we have MCT1s. You have also the CPT1 and CPT2. MCT1s transport lactate into mitochondria, and then CPT1s and CPT2s transport fatty acids. So it's, a, it's, it's different multiple elements that you improve, right, uh, during that time. Then at the glycolytic level, you also improve, uh, when you do intensity, you improve those MCT4s, Besides all the whole glycolysis, right, and all the uh, enzymes involved in glycolysis, the turbo, it acts much faster. You can all, you improve also the capacity to to improve uh, MCT4s, which are the the transporter that export lactate out of that fiber into the slow twitch muscle fiber. So you overexpress those transporters by isolating that training energy system as well. So be and this is well studied already in, in different settings and especially again my colleague George Brooks you know has uh, done a tremendous amount of work for 50 years about all this right so it's great that we can translate this into uh, working with athletes and I've certainly seen the effect when you have uh, athletes who do all high intensity and they don't do that that sort of base work you know, I remember one masters who I worked with he went in and got uh, tested and just riding at a, a steady, easy tempo, his lactates were up at four, five, six millimoles. And he could hold that forever. He was going, this, this isn't that hard. And our, our explanation was he was doing so much high-intensity work. He had overbuilt those MCT4 transporters, which were pumping the lactate out, but hadn't done the work that built the MCT1s to take it in. So even though he wasn't going all that hard, he was building up a ton of lactate and had nowhere to go. Exactly. And, and probably, yeah, that, the, the power up was very low, right? Yeah. He was riding steady at like 190 watts and, and his threshold was up around 300. Mm-hmm. So let's um, shift gears. We talked a lot about the physiology. Now let's talk about what sort of work you should be doing in the base season. And, and I'm going to start with a, a big question for you of should athletes be doing high intensity interval work in the off season or in the base season? And does that depend on the level of the athlete? Yeah, that's a good question. And the way I address that is, is like, you know, it depends on the goals for next season. Are you going to start racing early or later? Right. So in a month up and down makes a big difference. So I, I, I like to, to start doing some intensity here and there, right. Maybe not for the first month, but I like to start throwing intensities because it's important to make sure that you keep stimulating that glycolytic pathway, those type two muscle fibers, and all the again like glycolytic pathway because like everything else, it deteriorates over time, right? So I like to 
keep stimulating it, knowing though that it takes weeks to improve that bioenergetics. So, and then we have plenty of time if the season is, let's say, two or three months out, right? But I personally like to, after three or four weeks, uh, start just throwing some intensity efforts for sure. I like that. What sort of intensity do you have your athletes do? Is it short, very high intensity or is it more longer threshold? Yeah, I like more longer than shorter. But that being said, too, it depends on the characteristic of cyclists and, and their, you know, if it's like a punchy rider, right? That, uh, let's say, a criterium rider or a rider that is uh, more like a the typical classic rider that you need to like very short efforts, you might want to tailor those to four or five minutes, three to five minutes efforts as opposed to someone who's a pure climber. But it doesn't mean that it's only one or and the other, you need to do the other one. But I like to mix both and, and, and depends on their goals and capabilities of the athletes. Or some athletes are very good, for example, in uh, long efforts for 15, 20 minutes are competition pace, but they're not very good at those changes of gears, you know, uh, in that zone five, you know, those three to five minutes are really high intensity. And that's where like, okay, we focus more on that aspect, you know, so that's where those were some of the things that I like to individualize them according to the necessities of the of the athlete. Let's check back with Brent Bookwalter and his description of the sort of work he'd do in the base season. You know, throughout my career, the the race season, I think, continuously got longer and the off-season got shorter and the amount of things we needed to work on got more and you know, we had more science at our fingertips, more technical stuff to work on. So there really wasn't, yeah, the past five or 10 years of my career, there wasn't much time to just ride around a lot. Um, in general, I would say the the brief picture is, you know, a little bit of time off the bike, a little bit of time of unstructured riding. And then when I clicked back into sort of training on the road bike, there would probably be a period, but it was quite short. We're talking a couple of weeks where I would just do entirely unstructured riding. And then after that, because we're looking at the calendar and the clock thinking like races are coming, the structure came back pretty quick. So yeah, initially we weren't doing super high intensity anaerobic work, but there was metered, a lot of meter work, a lot of um, lower middle and upper aerobic work. Yeah. Kind of like zone three stuff or medio if you're Italian. Yep. <laughs> lots of, lots of medio on the climbs, medio on the flats. I'd say like uh, on the bike strength work would be part of that. Off the bike strength work, I would say would also be part of that. Yeah. And just trying to, to build that framework. It's really I always viewed like the base season or that foundational period as like training to train to do the the more heavy, high intensity stuff that was really going to lift you and push you into race mode. Fair. So what would be a couple quick examples of some structured work you'd do during that period of time? Yeah, a lot of a lot of the rides during that time, I would focus on accumulating, basically like progressing accumulation of time spent in that like that middle aerobic zone, like that tempo-ish zone. So I would start in the beginning and try to just spend like, you know, 30 minutes of a ride there, do three times 10 minutes. And then I would, you know, stretch it out to 40 or 50 and make those blocks of time longer. Kind of the classic like muscle tension or strength work. Yep. Definitely some uh, forced seated and standing work. I think the the tendency out of the, the off season or the detraining period is to I always, my tendency was to always like stand up more, get out of the saddle more, stretch around, but it was important to force myself to sit and sit on the flats and sit on the climbs. And also with that, just do other like postural training on the bike as well, like 
not just only be riding around, you know, on the flat roads on my tops, you know, with my head in the wind chatting, but during that, um, the sort of like tempo time, actually spend some time in the drops, spend some time on the hoods, spend some time in those positions that I was going to want to access once I do the higher intensity and when I start racing. So it's not like a, a completely different position. So what do you focus on in terms of the training that you have your athletes do in the base season? So I focus on that zone two mainly. And uh, so it's important then to do uh, a lactate test or physiological test before to calibrate those intensities, you know. And then since those evolve and change, what I ask my athletes uh, is just to have a lactate meter with them and even take them out there. And, and, and I teach them how to poke themselves and do lactate testing so they give me the feedback, right? Because those things are going to be changing over time. And uh, I can see their improvement over time. And I can also adjust their intensities. And that also way that the athlete gets more engaged with the training, right? They, they, they understand that better, the why are we doing this, you know? And uh, not just the how, but the why. And it, gets, it keeps them up quite engaged. And that being said, that's where like uh, the base season, as we always been traditionally called it, right? It's, it's important where uh, I particularly like to really work that zone two. That hopefully it's not becoming a cult thing, you know, the whole zone two concept. <laughs> but I've been, I've been, I started doing that like poof, almost 30 years ago. And uh, it was like a weird concept, right? But now it's so popular that it's, I, I'm a little bit, Skirkus, it seems like it's, the, it's the, the silver bullet for absolutely everything, including diseases, right? Which is not, right? But uh, it's just part of the equation, right? So, but it, to me, it's an important part. So that's what I like to really stimulate, you know, that uh, bioenergetics, which is, I've seen is what improves uh, fat oxidation, um, uh, mitochondrial function, lactic clearance capacity, and sets up a very good base to then introduce high intensity workouts as the season gets closer. And then I like to do some weight training also, especially for those ones who might need to improve that power, capacity, or strength, and improve the neuromuscular adaptations to high intensities. I like to do uh, weight training. And since there's some transfer from weight right after training, I will do a session. I just like to do zone two session several days a week. Again, this is my experience, right? And uh, empiric experience, but I don't see any research on that, right? There's slime breaches, they say, but this might be tr some transfer of power from doing a weightlifting session and go right away to biking. I just see that it might work for the first month or two of the preseason. It's not sustainable to do that throughout the season. I'm not very fun of doing weight training during the season, especially in more endurance athletes, because it's going to be an artifact, especially when you throw competition or so. Uh, you might have some blocks, as I mentioned earlier, or a month and a half or two where you can throw some. If you feel that that athlete might be a sprinter, especially for sprinters, which are a whole different breed of athletes, right? But not a big fan of doing this in more endurance type athletes during the season. But in the off the season, I, I, I like to do it also. So Zone two, some weightlifting, I like to do that. Dr. San Milan, something that I'm interested in from you is during this base training phase, are you altering the weekly uh, calendar of somebody? Are you, say, purposefully uh, doing double workouts or back-to-back -back workouts? How does that look specifically for this time? Yeah, that's a good question. And I would say in, in my beginnings coaching athletes, I, I would do some double sessions 
I saw that over time, they don't seem, again, in my opinion, they don't seem to have much of a benefit, except if you do like, a, let's say, weights and you want to do later on, like a cycling. But I like to do it together, as I mentioned earlier. But I think that doing that in one session, right, it's, uh, to me, it's, it's enough because physiologically and mentally might be too much to do two trainings in one day. And eventually, I, uh, that's when I, I started to look at blood analysis and, and, and further testing with lactate. And, uh, and that's what I saw that, well, people could, could get to deteriorate. So it's, it's a game or an area that I don't want to enter in and take risks further or deterioration of those athletes or, or that farther into the season mentally, they're already burned out from doing double sessions at this time of the, of the season. So one session to me is enough. So the other interesting thing I want to ask you about in terms of the week, this is something I've always believed in. When you get into the season and you're doing races, you're doing training races, you're doing really high intensity interval work, a single workout can really beat you up and you might need a day or two to recover from that. My personal experience is the work that you do in the base season, no one day is really going to beat you up enough to give you that, that big training stimulus. So I've always been a big believer in the base season of building blocks of days. So you, you have three days where maybe you do some, some threshold work one day, and then you have two longer days, and it's the accumulation of the three days that builds a fatigue. And then you take a day or two easy, and then you have another two or three day block. What's your feeling on that? Is, is that how you approach it with your athletes? Or do you think that doesn't make as big a difference? No, exactly. So yeah, I like to uh, build some recovery days, but I like to have, as you said, three days in a row, for example, right, where you can build some fatigue and then whew, take a recovery day and just do it all over again, right? So I like to build like one or two easy days, but also, yeah, it's just like if you throw like a proper session of zone two and, and you have like longer hours and then you you have uh, the next day some lactate threshold or a throw a lactate threshold session or, or interval within a, like a zone two day. Yeah, that over time that causes fatigue, right? So you need to stay back in recovery. And this is part of the monitoring also that we do with athletes as well. I personally really like to, to see how they're, and this is at the, at the elite level every month we do blood analysis because I look at different parameters and I can see how well an athlete is simulating training. And when you have competition, how they're simulating competition as well. So you can tweak training program, you know. So that's an important part of, of the monitoring. Because if you don't do the monitoring, sometimes you might see that an athlete is maybe not assimilating that block of training very well and is getting uh, fatigued, overtrained. And if you miss that, that uh, performance might be decreasing. Uh, and it, it's going to be difficult to get that athlete out of that hole. Whereas if you see that with monitoring, you can get that athlete uh, immediately after that. Then on a day-to-day, -day, you know, for example, through training peaks, we see a lot of data that all coaches see, right? Um, and, and you can see uh, a lot of parameters like, oh, what's the heart rate? I always say, listen to your heart rate, right? You see that they might have difficulties to get their heart rate up. And that's a sign of fatigue also. So right away, you're on top of that rider. Or you see that, let's say they're doing whatever watts per kilogram for that day. I don't know, let's say three or 3.3. And, uh, and, and today they only did 2.3 or 2.4. So you contact that rider right away and say, what, what, what happened today? You know, you really have much lower power output. And then my, that's where the feedback is very important, right? The, the daily feedback with the athlete, how are you doing today? And like, yeah, you're right. Just 
I couldn't push the pedals today. Okay, then uh, tomorrow we have a longer day or in a longer day with an interval. So let's do a recovery day tomorrow. Okay, and let's push it again. Another thing that happens here and it's happening now in this time is like you have uh, all these respiratory infections, right? Whether it's the influenza or, or the flu or where it's just like um, upper respiratory infection that is going to take out that rider for a whole week or five days, right? So that, that's, that's a time to be careful about it and not after they get nervous, obviously, and uh, upset that they have to take a week off or several days off, right? But it is the way it is. And sooner or later, everybody's going to get, or most people are going to get one of these infections. So that's what can derail the entire block, right? So it is what it is. And then you have to be patient. But then when you go back to train again, you need to make sure that you know, you do a transition period until the athlete has good sensations again. So yeah, that's what I like to focus in these aspects. Yep. Something I always tell my athletes after they're sick, because they want to get back to the, the original training plan is basically say, you have to throw at everything that we had before and figure out what's the best plan moving forward now. And it's going to be different from the previous plan. Yeah, exactly. You might take a step back, right? To continue, right? I supposed to take two steps forward and like, uh, that's probably not going to work very well in the long term. So something I always tell my athletes in the base season is I want them feeling like a tank, meaning if they go out and do that zone two steady ride, they could do that all day long. But if they're out with the buddy and the buddy suddenly says, Hey, let's sprint for that town line sign. They kind of go, yeah, that's not really in the legs right now. And what I say is, we want you to be a tank during the base season. And then that transition to the race season is where we convert you from a tank to a sports car. Because as you said, that, that top end comes around really quickly. Interesting your response to that though. Do you think that that's how an athlete should feel in the base season or should they feel a little more like a racer? No, that's a great analogy. I never thought about that before, but yeah, it's a great analogy, Trevor. So I think along the same lines and I think that uh, it's important that to be patient and to be focused uh, in that this part of the year to really isolate every, you know, specifically this energy system, right? That being said, if an athlete it's, it has that lion or a sports car mentality and like, oh, I cannot be three months without doing a sprint or doing a high interval, sure, why not? You know, absolutely. Uh, to me, there's no problem. Keep that athlete happy, you know, but, uh, but still, you know, within like the context of like, this is, this is where we want to focus on this uh, part of the, of the season. And then, yeah, we'll become a sports car. It's very well said. So last thing I wanted to ask you about, I know this is an approach a lot of coaches take. I know this is an approach that a lot of world tour teams take of maybe few times during that base season, have a big training camp where you spend a anywhere from three days to seven days doing a, basically a fatigue block, something that's beyond your normal training that you're going to be pretty tired from by the end of it. What's your feeling on these training camps or fatigue blocks in, in the base season? Well, that's a good point. And I think, uh, yeah, this is, to me, I, I try not to do those. And especially, I mean, one thing that I have for training camps, obviously there's a lot of things that happen in the training camp. So training camp, you know, this is where cyclists, they get their equipment. They need to do medical tests, physiological tests, biomechanical tests, try the new equipment. Then they have its absolutely key to have meetings with sports directors. There's days for sponsors, for media, 
So in these training camps, there's a lot of things going on. There are a lot of activities, right? So and you have to always respect every every activity, which is very important, right? I put just like from my physiologist and coach hat, right? I, I like to the training part of it, right? And in the training part of it, I'm not as comfortable anymore with these these training camps, the way they're structured. And this is where we're trying to uh, negotiate, right? In a way with, with everything that is going on around, right? Because nowadays uh, we can monitor perfectly any athlete from around the world. Not, not perfectly, perfection doesn't really exist, but almost perfectly, you know, very well on a daily basis, right? And, and what I feel is that when these athletes come to these training camps and they're writing groups, many of them, they complain and say, man, oh, this is derailing my training. You know, they feel anxious. They feel like, oh, I don't need this training camp for training, right? And you always tell them, okay, I could, I could agree with that, but you need to, to meet with the directors to try the new equipment. This is where you get the clothes, where you get the bikes. You need to buy mechanical testing to make sure that the new bike this year will have its fit. So it's absolutely necessary to be there. But it's in the negotiation where at least I say, okay, let's try to individualize these trainings as much as possible, do as smallest groups as possible. Because if you have one athlete that they, ha- they have to do five hours and they're like in the back with a group of 15 or 20, actually they're only going to be training uh, out of the five hours. The actually training is going to be uh, one hour or less. So what about the recreational rider who doesn't have to deal with all that, but just says once or twice in the winter, I'm going to take four days and, and really ramp up my volume, not necessarily intensity, but really ramp up the volume and, and get myself to a bit of a fatigue. Do you feel there's a, a value in that? I don't see much of that value. Honestly, I think that they should continue with the same structure. The, the thing of the winter, and this is why we do these training camps where there's good weather, Right. So, for example, now in Colorado, we've been having one of the worst winters I ever remember. You cannot go outside any day. It's cold, icy, whatever. Right. If I, if I am a recreational athlete and I have the resources and the money, I would go to Arizona, for example. Right. And and the same week that I should do here now that I can't because I cannot go outside and I'm I'm sick of doing trainers indoors. Right. I would just grab a bike and go for a week or ten days to Arizona and do the same block that I would do here. And this is where I would get a very good quality training, whereas others here in Colorado, for example, or other colder climates, they have to deal with this and are stuck, right? So I think this is the value, in my, in my humble opinion, to move out of a cold area and go to the, to the warm area. Like, for example, someone put a post on Twitter or in or social media about how many teams, World Tour teams, were in the same area when they did our training camp in, in December, and this is the area of Alicante, Valencia, in, in the Mediterranean, which is very mild weather year-round. You're in your, in your 50s, 60s, even 70s year, you know, in this time of the year. So it's perfect for training. And, and we were like about 80% of the entire World Tour teams were in a 20, 30-kilometer radius, you know. So, but uh, yeah, for recreational athletes, I would try to move away if you can to a colder climate. If not, I would kind of try to continue with your program. Well, Dr. Samalan, thank you. It's been a great conversation. We, we certainly covered base training, but I, I think we, you know, as we always do with you, went a lot of really interesting places with the, the physiology. So you know how this works. We always finish out with a take-home, the most important message you want our listeners to leave with. So let's start with you. What do you think is your message for this episode? 
I think my, in my opinion, the message of base training is to do that, to, to focus on that base training and to understand what is going on there, right? For example, in, as we have discussed, been, been discussing is to try to target those bioenergetics of that mitochondrial function and uh, oxidative uh, phosphorylation, which is the energy system. And I don't want to get off topic now, but I think we know a lot about this at the scientific level. And I think it's time to translate it at the coaching level with proper terminology. We can also interfere back and forth with base training or aerobic training, if you will, right? But I think that, yeah, just whether you want to call aerobic base or oxidative training, it's important to understand what we're doing, right? And what we're targeting at the cellular level. And to build on that, for me, what's important to point out is this doesn't necessarily have to be a one time of year in a very linear fashion. It's not like you just focus on this for a short moment, then you move on to the next thing, then you move on to competition, then you move on to the recovery after the season. And I do think that some you know, popular online training things almost make it seem like it ought to be that way with how their annual plan builder goes. This, depending on the athlete and depending on the needs of their events, the needs of their physiology, this training, this type of training is something that you can do multiple times throughout as you prepare throughout the season. So the training concepts that we talked about today are hugely, hugely important. Don't be afraid to apply those at multiple times throughout your training season. And I think my take home is going back to a story I had in that article I just wrote. I remember a bunch of years ago, uh, there was this weekly training race. It was a master's. A bunch of us would get together and and go through this loop. And on this loop, there was this one minute climb that really was the race. Everybody would hit that really hard. And one time a, a world tour athlete who's ridden the Tour de France a bunch of times showed up and everybody was shocked when we hit that one minute climb, he didn't really drop anybody. And they're like, oh, he was holding back. And I was trying to explain to them, no, he really wasn't. What they didn't notice was after the climb, he rode away from the whole group at over 300 watts. And the point that I made in my article, which I think is, is my argument for why base is so important, is you would be surprised, even as a, a recreational master's athlete, how close your one-minute and five-minute power can get to what you'd see in a world tour athlete. Everybody focuses on those short endurance wattages, but you actually hit a pretty high level pretty quickly. What differentiates that world tour athlete from the rest of us is they can sit there at 300 watts for four hours and go, no problem. Where most people, 300 watts, that's threshold or above. And they're not going to hang on at that, that kind of steady pace that the World Tour athlete's doing. That's what differentiates the best athletes. And that's what you build in the base season. I agree 100%. Yeah, very great example. Well, Dr. Samalan, thank you so much. Always a pleasure having you on the show. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, it's always fun and, and great. Thank you very much. That was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcast. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. Join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com to discuss each and every episode. Become a member of Fast Talk Laboratories at fasttalklabs.com slash join to become part of our education and coaching community. For Dr. Inigo Samalan, Brent Bookwalter, Dr. Bradley Pettick, Stephen Hyde, and Trevor Connor, I'm Rob Pickles. Thanks for listening.